Happiness is elusive, isn't it? We talk about these days, these precious moments where we experience the grace of God in a special way. And there are all kinds of pseudo offerings of happiness. Every commercial, every stripe and type of entertainment, practically all we hear and read tries to provide us with some kind of lighthouse to get through the dense fog of our everyday monotony. Where we're trying to find, I mean, man, everything we do is in an effort to try to be happy, isn't it? In his best-selling book, Purpose Driven Life, how many of you have read that, Purpose Driven Life? Great read if you haven't yet, very good book. Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren describes a survey conducted by Dr. Hugh Moorhead, a philosophy professor at Northern Illinois University. Moorhead wrote to 250 famous philosophers, scientists, writers, and intellectuals, and Chris Old, asking us, just making sure you're listening. I do that to my kids from time to time when we go through devotions. Asking a simple question, what is the meaning of life? It doesn't sound like a simple question to me, but I understand where he's going. Some offered their best guesses. Others admitted they just made up a response. Still others honestly admitted they were clueless. Several of the intellectuals even asked Moorhead to write back and tell them if he had discovered the purpose of life himself. The conclusion is unsettling. In our time, the wise men are running low on wisdom. Maybe this is why we look around too often for young people to bring life and vitality and uh, humor and a sense of lightness that we wish we had, only to find that many times they're worse off than us. The iconic ruler of Jerusalem, King Solomon, knew well this chase for happiness and meaning and purpose. He's the author of three great books of the Bible. Does anybody know what those are? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, right. Some of those are debatable, but we're pretty sure all those were written by Song of Solomon, or (laughs) by Solomon. So anyway, when he wrote these, we see this slow decline in his faith. You know, he starts out in the summer of his life, and he's filled with hope, and uh, his his, uh, sense of trust is firmly entrenched with God. He writes Song of Solomon, writing about real love, and it's a very colorful book that actually Jewish boys were not allowed to read until they were of age. It's a great book on marriage. If you're only going to read one book on marriage, that would be the one, but it also describes our love for Christ as well. And then in the fall of his life came Proverbs, offering heavenly wisdom for earthly living. And then in the winter of his life, His faith weakened just one inch at a time, one small compromise at a time until his faith became dry and cold. And that's when he wrote Ecclesiastes, saying that all of life was meaningless. And we've been there, haven't we? All of us have been in places where it seems like, man, all I do is wake up in the morning, go to work, go to school so that what? I can get a job, support a family so that then one day my kids can do that and over and over and over it goes. It can feel meaningless Without Christ. So he speaks of this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. He says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, what do you really think about life, Solomon? You know, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. 
The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place where streams come from. There they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. So what, I mean, Solomon's pretty broody here, isn't he? I mean, right now, when he wrote this, he would not be the kind of guy that you'd want to invite to your house on a Friday night. I mean, he's a downer here. So why so broody? Well, I think it's best described by a heartbreaking account. I remember watching a movie about this years ago, but uh, an account that took place on October 14, 1943. Jewish slave laborers in Sobobor surprised their captors by using pickaxes and shovels to attack their German oppressors. They cut the electric lines by the fences and they stole uh, rifles and guns and they were trying to shoot their way out to the potentially safer forest that, that rested just beyond the fence line. Hundreds stormed through the barbed wire and minefields. Of the 700 prisoners who took part in the escape, 300 made it to the forest and of those, less than 100 were known to have survived. The remainder were hunted down by the Germans and executed. But Thomas Blatt, or Tovey as he was known to his native Poland, was 15 years old when his family was herded to Sorbador and killed in the gas chamber. He was the only surviving member of his family. And he was a part of this escape. And although he was trampled and left for dead, he revived and he was able to get out with a handful of other friends about his age, teenagers. And they're running through the forest for days, starved, no water, running on adrenaline and hope. And they would, uh, during the day, they would hide in the foliage, and at night, they would crash through the forest the best they could. And after traveling again for days, they saw what they thought was their hope of escape. They saw a building out in the distance, and they thought, maybe this is a business. Maybe it's a home. Certainly, someone will come to our rescue, only to find as they got closer that they had done one huge, enormous, multi-day trek back to the concentration camp where Tovey sprinted back out into the woods and he was the lone survivor. I think Solomon, with his spiritual foundations ruined, writing Ecclesiastes, found this useless circle in the woods. That's what he found life to be meaningless. The oceans and the sun move on, marching relentlessly through time, and the generations come and go, inevitably leading towards death. And then you recycle and repeat over and over and over again. He had it all. He had literally the wealth of nations at his disposal. More wives than uh, any one man could possibly love. He had uh, all the influence in the world. In fact, God blessed him with a very special gift. He was the wisest man on planet Earth the richest and wisest man on planet earth. He had it all. Not only that, he had great accomplishments. He had done much. Uh, Jerusalem was at its pinnacle. It was the most profitable time in her history with 40 years of peace and prosperity. Things were good. And yet he said all of life was meaningless without God. You see, Solomon knew, like all of us do if we're honest, that Eternity was written onto our hearts. We know that life is more than about the everyday, that there's something deeper behind it all. Solomon says so in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. He says of God, 
He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You know, we, and you know this, we were made to find pleasure outside of what our hands can grab. This world is not enough for us. It can't provide enough. Even the man who had it all could not get enough. He had all the success, all the influence, all the money. But we have one who's written eternity on our hearts that blesses us with riches that we can't even begin to fathom. And maybe some of us have lost our way like Solomon at night. Have you lost your way? Are you on the run trying to find other things to fill what only Jesus can satisfy with? There's a better way. Striving can stop and satisfaction can well up in us and give us the wholeness that we crave. So let's read about how to get there. Lord, we lift up this time to you. We thank you for the power of your word. Lord, help us to have hard, tough minds as we grapple with your scriptures tonight and soft hearts. Help us to apply what you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter says, he's talking to the early church here, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How many of you want inexpressible and glorious joy? This isn't mere happiness for a day. This is serious. I saw some of you, your eyes lit up like, heck yeah, sign me up. Well, you're going to get to sign up tonight. Uh, So why? But here's one thing. As soon as I read this passage, I think you probably have the same question. Why is Peter telling them what they're experiencing? Why tell them what they're already experiencing? You know, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go to Justin tonight and say it's about 74 degrees in here. The ambiance is fairly warm and you're relatively comfortable here enjoying family and friends. You know, I'm not going to tell him what he's already experiencing. He's the expert. He says, though you have not seen, you've loved him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He tells them what they're experiencing, namely this. You are loving Christ, you're believing in Christ, and you're rejoicing in Christ with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, why? Why tell them, again, why tell them their own experience? The answer to this question helps us to avoid what Solomon fell into. Okay, what this does is it gives them a roadmap to know where they are in case they ever get lost, they can find their way back to their first love, Jesus. And it's important because all of us, all of us fall away. In big ways and in small ways, and we come back to this map. When I read Peter's words, I think of a 66-mile bike tour I took with Timothy Christopher Old right there. He was 10 years old. We had Walmart bikes. Okay, this was seven years ago. He'll be 17 in September. He, I got his permission to embarrass him here. But he was by far the youngest racer. And I remember it was this older lady who, we get there and we're checking in for the race, and she's like, Dad, 
are you sure you want to do this? Number one, she said in a nice way, your bikes suck. And your kid is way too young to ride a bike this. And I go, no, see, you don't understand my son. He didn't want to do the 30-mile tour. We've been training for this, and he wants a challenge. But you know what I remember even more than that? I remember vividly the importance of this piece of paper. You know, your phone wouldn't last long enough, at least as slow as we are. It were. We wouldn't be slow now. We would be the racers. I don't know. We'd have some kind of cool name and paint our faces and enjoy life. Uh, but I remember this map. Because there were just these little spray paint markers. And this map is kind of hard to see. So we'd have to stop and look at the cross streets. and Because you know, I didn't want to get lost with the 10-year-old. And uh, so we had this map. It methodically guided us from one landmark to another until we finally finished dead last, almost eight hours after we started. Dead last. No one else. We couldn't even see anybody in front of us. Timmy fell asleep about 30 seconds after he got in the car. We stopped and ate more pizza than anybody, than all of you in this room combined could eat. I mean, this kid, he worked hard. And uh, I read on the map, I wrote something on the back of it that I have his permission to share. Dear Timmy, what an awesome accomplishment together. We rode 66 miles together. I can't believe you, a 10-year-old guy, endured till the end. The best part was not completing the many miles, but rather completing them with you. You are a special guy, and I love you very much. I hope this accomplishment points your heart to a much more important race, a race that I, by the grace of God, can only show you. I can't run it for you, but I joyfully run it with you. This race I speak of is the most important pursuit of your life and the only one that will provide real happiness. This race is what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. Timothy, there will be many races that promise popularity, happiness, and companionship. They'll look inviting and even like something good. They'll both be tempting, and they'll seem like the right race at the time to sign up for. Sign up for one race only in this life, and you'll discover adventure and joy that will satisfy like no other. You're being prepared now for this grand race, and I'm proud of the decisions you've made so far to pursue good over evil and truth over a lie. This race to spread the good news and share in its blessing, as Paul says, requires several key elements. Number one, a compass and a map. We needed to go where this map indicated or we would be lost, big time lost. Follow the Bible. Look to it often to make sure you're running the right way. Number two, race partners. Find others that want to win. You and I were pursuing the same goal, the finish line. I found your mom and many good brothers who want to reach the world. I hope and pray you'll do the same. And number three, a finish line. We rode for almost eight hours to cross the finish line, and the race the Lord sets out for us is simply to love. Jesus is the author of love, and he calls us to share his love, the great commission with the world. Finish strong, I believe in you. Dad, racing with you always. Well, and I don't share that at all to, to in any way draw attention to myself. I was shocked that Timmy held on to us. It hold, held on to this. It warmed my heart. He had it a special place in his room. Um, 
But Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us these same kind of landmarks. A map, so to speak, that if we're lost, we can find our way home. And sometimes those of us who seem the most together are the most lost. So I ask that all of us tonight prayerfully consider, Jesus, what do you want from me? How do I need to return to you, my first love? Be praying that even as as I share the word with you, and I'll be praying that for me and you as well as I speak. So the first landmark is loving Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. You know, loving Christ is simply experiencing him as precious because of his character. In other words, he is precious. It's not just someone who throws out a bunch of commands at us or is there for us when we're down, but he's precious to us. Peter speaks to this a chapter later in verse 7. He says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But remember, we possess this supernatural love for Christ, not out of our own strength. Remember, we've shared this verse every week. Psalm 147, verse 10, his, that's God's, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. We know that we only love because he first loved us. So that means our affection for Christ need not be manufactured. And that's good news. Because if I have to somehow manufacture a love for Christ, it means that we're in competition. And you've got to be better than me or I've got to be better than you. But we have a love that, for Jesus that he has to place inside of us at salvation. So I ask the Holy Spirit to wake up the love of Christ for Christ that's already in me. And I might pray something like, Lord, I feel apathetic towards you today, but thank you that I can love you because you first loved me. I take hold of that love that you have for me right now in Jesus' name. We can pray simple prayers like that. Moving on to the second landmark, if we fall away, or I should say when we fall away. Landmark number two, trusting Christ. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, second part of verse 8. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. So we can experience Jesus as reliable in all of his promises and counsel. Faith is confident in what the trusted one will do. And what that means is, you know, some of you are into rock climbing in this church. Well, you trust that rope is going to save your life, right? You trust that that thing is going to keep you from falling to your death. If I trust Jesus, I trust that despite my selfishness, he is my love. Despite my lust, he is my purity. Despite my materialism, he is my generosity. I mean, I believe in spiritual warfare, but I don't believe the devil got into my life. So I'm good to start talking into this? Okay, perfect. This is going to throw me way off, but that's okay. Uh, Trust requires risk for us. That means that there's a bridge. And on one side of the bridge is how I feel. On the other side of the bridge is who I know Jesus has made me. And so when I'm apathetic, I know he's my passion. When I'm doubting, I know he's my confidence. And I trust despite my feelings. That is faith. 
Finally, our last landmark, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time tonight, the rest of our time, enjoying Christ. And this is where I get pretty pumped up, and I know you will too. Again, uh, verse 8. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's quite a claim. An inexpressible and glorious joy. You know, there are so many verses about joy in the Bible, finding joy in Christ, because that is the primary response he wants us to have to him, joy. The joy he wants for us is deep, good feelings of being confident that's trusting in him for what he promises he will do. So we get pumped up over his promises. That's what it looks like. And I might add, our feelings are an important part of who we are, so God wants us to worship him with our feelings. Okay, we should feel joyful about our relationship with Christ. Because wouldn't it be a contradiction to say, I'm attracted to the preciousness of what Christ is, but I have no good feelings in this attraction. What's good attraction without good feelings for something? I'm attracted to my wife, very much so, and I also have very good feelings in that attraction. It's the same with faith. It would be a contradiction, would it not, to say, I'm confidently trusting in what Christ will do for me, but I have no good feelings in this confidence. What is confidence without good feelings? So I'll, ex- I'll definitely expect pain and suffering along the way, but if I don't expect either this side of eternity or on the other side that Jesus is going to do something awesome, then it's not really confidence and trust. So in a nutshell, attraction to the ultimate preciousness of Christ, which we call love, and confidence in the ultimate reality of Jesus, which we call faith, are not less than a good deep feeling called joy. That's how they all connect. And there's more to it. There's certainly more elements to these three than uh, deep, good feelings of joy, but there are no less than joy. Joy is no less than a deep down good feeling. It's more than that, but it's certainly not less. This joy then is rightly described by Peter as inexpressible and glorious. So let's explore the natural outworking in love and trust called joy or enjoyment of God, because that's why we're here, right? Because we enjoy Jesus and we want to enjoy him more and we want others to enjoy him. That's why Jesus in his very first miracle turned water into wine to announce that his kingdom was a kingdom of joy. That he is the life of the party. So joy, you become what you crave. What makes joy? What's the character of joy? You become what you crave. If the object of our joy is dirty, like porn or inappropriate humor, then our joy will be soiled because our heart is soiled. If we enjoy cruelty and revenge, then the cravings to pursue revenge and cruelty will result in a bitter character. Or the more we grab our joy from material things, then the more our heart and joy will shrivel up and become like a mere material thing. Here today and gone tomorrow, constantly searching for more. Peter says in verse 8 that joy in Christ is inexpressible. So here's where the rubber meets the road. How does this joy, this enjoyment of Christ, become that grand? How does it reach this jaw-dropping level of inexpressible? I mean, that's crazy. That's not just comfort. That's not, yeah, Jesus died for me. You know, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. He's always there for me. That's 
I cannot believe that he's so awesome. That's our face lighting up. That's, we can't contain it. It's like fire in our bones. That's what this inexpressible joy is about. The believer's joy, that is the enjoyment of Jesus, is simply craving the preciousness of Jesus and the reliability of Jesus. When we become like we, when we crave Jesus, we become like Jesus. The preciousness and reliability of Jesus are inexpressibly great, so our joy is inexpressibly great in him. And Christ has in him all the glory of the universe and of God. So it makes sense that the enemy would relentlessly attack us with pseudo, saccharine sweet, poor substitutes for joy, but we don't know any different, so we keep sucking it down. And it slowly kills our faith just like it did Solomon's. One inch at a time. I mean, think about that. All the glory and joy of God in the universe is in Christ. The one who made the ridiculous hummingbird that we laugh at is in Christ. The one who made little baby heaven, who was upstairs, she's upstairs running around every week at prayer time, and I love it. There's nothing better than the sound of footsteps on a wood, baby's footsteps on a wood floor while you're praying. I think Jesus would just, he would love, he'd be playing with them on the floor the entire time while I talk to God. I really believe that, but I'm getting sidetracked. The joy of that baby comes from Jesus. And the smile it puts on all our faces comes from him. It may be like taking a picture while you're diving on vacation and you show your friends when you get home and you say, you know what? This picture can't do it justice. The, the colors of these plants and fish and the power and majesty of these big, large fish made my heart feel like it was going to stop. Word, a photo can't capture it and words can't describe it. You had to what? Be there. You had to see it. So this joy must be seen and experienced by the follower of Jesus and it's available to all of us. The whole thing, the whole Christian life is about joy. If Jesus isn't our joy, then we are sick. No matter how together our lives may seem, we are sick and we need him so bad because he wants to give us lasting and real and pure joy. So another question I have when I spot these three landmarks is how do we crave the preciousness of Christ if we can't see him? I mean, again, Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. How do we love and believe in him if we can't see him? Don't you all wonder that? Haven't believers wondered that for hundreds and thousands of years? If I could just see him, then my heart would explode for him, and I would follow him to the ends of the earth. If I could just see him with my own eyes. Let me tell you right now, unequivocally, Put this down. This right here is far, far better, infinitely better than being able to see Jesus in the flesh. We have something, we have the ability to see Jesus more clearly and more powerfully with this than the disciples had when they saw him face to face. Let 
Let me explain. In Romans chapter 15, Paul described his mission to an unreached people, that is, those who had not seen Jesus. And Paul says he aims to not preach the gospel where Christ has already been known. And in this preaching, he says, and I quote in Romans 15, those who told will see, those who were told will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That means that in the preaching of the gospel, Jesus can be seen in a way that's far more special and powerful than physical sight. See, hundreds of people saw Jesus in his lifetime, and they didn't really see him. Most rejected him. Most who saw Jesus, even the risen Christ, rejected him. Do you know that? So seeing is not believing. See, we need a special type of sight that is far, far better than physical sight. Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The eyes of our hearts must be healed by the Holy Spirit for us to be saved and for us to find pleasure in our relationship with God even after we're saved. So many who saw Jesus with their physical eyes didn't really see him with the eyes of their heart. So how does it happen? How do we see? We see Jesus through the word of God. When the gospel is preached by someone else, whether it's a small group setting, one-on-one, a setting like this, or when you read the Bible on your own, we see him more clearly. We see him for who he really is. We see him much more fully than if we'd have seen him when he walked the earth. If you read Matthew through John with openness to Christ, you and I will be able to see the glory of God more clearly than most, if not all, did during his lifetime. We see Nicodemus discover new life in him. The centurion find real power in him. The thief on the cross find real and lasting grace and mercy. The crowd saw very little, but the gospel showed the breadth and the depth of his his teaching and ministry. The gospels are better than being there because they take us to the inner circle of his followers to see it all. We go with Jesus through the tears of Gethsemane, his unjust trial, the empty tomb, and all the encounters with the risen Christ. We're not isolated to a few glimpses of Jesus on a hillside. We see it all. A rich and deep experience with the resurrected and reigning King Jesus. We see the whole range of his character and power that no one on planet earth saw during his lifetime. We see his freedom from anxiety even though he had no place to lay his head. We see his courage in the face of unspeakable persecution. His honoring of women and tenderness towards children are in full view in the gospels. We see him touch and love the leper, patience with Peter, and we feel his heart for the nations. Love for God's glory and simplicity and devotion are front and center in every page. We see power to still storms and heal the sick. We watch him multiply bread and cast out demons and love society's rejects. Those who simply saw him with eyeballs just witnessed a new and powerful teacher for the most part. We see so much more. We see the meekness of the cradle and the cross and the heart-racing power of the glorified Christ in in Revelation where it says his eyes were like fire 
when he finally comes to forever slay the culprit of racism, sex trafficking, slavery, and food shortages. Sin and death will be no more. We see it all. Though we don't see him in another sense, we see him better than the thousands who saw him face to face. We see in the Gospels the glory of God shining in a man's face. He's our map of inexpressible joy written on our heart through the Holy Spirit, reminding us of where to go when we get lost. That is why every single day you and I will be tempted to not read our Bible. It just seems too easy, doesn't it? It's always there. And it's our, it's our greatest and most powerful prayer book. And if we struggle to talk to God, he speaks to us through his word and, and we talk back to him and immediately the Holy Spirit will stir your heart and it'll be our roadmap back to him. So maybe you feel you've lost your way tonight. Maybe you feel like uh, it's been a very long time since you've experienced inexpressible and glorious joy. I want to invite you to come up tonight if you would like prayer. Our prayer team will be up here uh, after uh, this time of worship. We'll have communion. We'll have worship. And then I, I would invite you to pray with someone you know who loves Jesus uh, just out there in your seat or come up front. There'll be people who uh, want to listen to you and pray with you. This is something where every single one of us in this room struggles. We fall away, don't we? And the longer we follow Christ, man, the more subtle and uh, the more devious the attack. Maybe our outward moral behaviors are fine, but our heart can so quickly become far from him. Uh, so take advantage of that. I'll go ahead and invite the worship team up here and um, I want us now to maybe just take a minute to look at that verse, those two verses, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. And let's ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to know, see, or experience? The Lord can speak to our minds. We're told to love him with all of our mind. He can speak to our emotions. We're told to love him with all of our heart. We see that especially in the Psalms. And we're to love him with all of our strength. There could be something he's calling you to do. What does he want you to know, see, or experience from that passage? Let him speak to you about his inexpressible and glorious joy. Lord, please speak to us now as we reflect on the teaching of your word. Lord, we want it to change us. Help us to get out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.